out your sermon outline. It says the resurrection of Christ on it. I had to think long and hard about what to preach about today. So today I will be preaching, we're sort of taking a time out from our series on misunderstood verses to preach from some verses that we hope nobody misunderstands. And so today we'll be in Luke chapter 24, the, uh, the first 12 verses of Luke's account of the resurrection of that first Easter. So if you would turn in your Bibles, uh, look on your Bible app, uh, whatever it is that you have, or look in the bulletin uh, and listen carefully as this is God's word. Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman uh, with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us this Easter morning once again to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. We know that everything about Christianity depends on the truth of the resurrection, and yet we are people filled with doubts and are often skeptical. Make us people who marvel at your truth. Make us people who respond with wonder at the resurrection of your son. We ask you this Easter morning to give us the grace to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done on this resurrection day. So by your spirit, open this gospel to us and help us to see Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you've ever followed any of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, or if you were here for uh, the series on the Gospel of Luke in 2002 and 2003, or the Gospel of John in 2007 and 2008, or the Gospel of Matthew in 2013 and 2014. Haven't done Mark yet, but it's coming, January 2020. Anyway, in a careful reading of Jesus' life, 
you would see repeated episodes of dramatic healing, powerful teaching, amazing miracles, harsh rebukes, terrible prophecies, and the true shock and awe of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The crucifixion of Christ was unthinkable to the disciples. Jesus' followers believed he was the Messiah, that he would overthrow Rome and usher in God's kingdom on earth. But now Christ was dead. And when the crucifixion happened, even though he predicted it, none of his followers said, well, everything's going according to plan. All four of the Gospels give us a rather unflattering portrait of what happened when he died. His disciples were disheartened, dismayed, disappointed, disillusioned, and dispirited. They were filled with doubt. The unthinkable had happened. And all his followers could see was darkness and gloom And none of his followers, not one, had even the slightest glimmer of hope. Now, God himself bore testimony to Jesus' death. We go to Matthew chapter 27. It tells us, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This is at the crucifixion, at the cross, when all this was happening. It said, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split Tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Amazing things happened. When Jesus was crucified, it was shock and awe that we have a hard time even imagining. And of course, the last act played out with uh, Joseph of Arimathea, jumping to Luke chapter 23. Joseph went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. So as far as the disciples could see, it's all over. They had come up against a blank wall. They hadn't believed it would end like this and they hadn't yet grasped the truth of Jesus' prophecies of resurrection. There's nothing left except this recurring sense of utter helplessness. And, of course, the shame of their denials and their desertions. The disciples didn't know. They were about to experience a greater joy than they had ever known. And Luke 24 is the story of discovering that joy. In this passage, we see how the truth of the resurrection brings both doubt and wonder to the followers of Christ, including us. Their experience is our experience. So let's look again at the last few verses of our text uh, for today. We'll start at verse 10. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. 
But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The passage ends with the apostle Peter marveling. Some versions say wondering. It was an unexplainable phenomenon. I mean, how would you explain it? The angels told the women that Jesus had risen from the dead just as Jesus had told them. So the women went back to tell the men. And the men are all hiding behind closed doors and fearful. And these words seemed to them to be an idle tale. One version translates that as the story sounded like nonsense. So I looked up the definition of an idle tale. And it means empty talk or a silly story, or a foolish yarn, or utter nonsense. They simply didn't believe the women. But Peter, not all the disciples, not all the apostles, Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Who was the one that denied Jesus the most? Who's the one that deserted him the most? He runs to the tomb. He stoops in, uh, stoops down, looks in. He sees the grave clothes there by themselves. And we're told he goes home marveling at what had happened. So what we have here is doubt and disbelief on the one hand and marvel and wonder on the other. We're here because of an unexplainable phenomenon. There's one fact on which everyone agrees Followers and skeptics alike agree that Jesus' body disappeared. But what's the explanation? And there's two different perspectives, doubt and wonder. How many of you have ever watched the X-Files? Either the old one or the new one. Not much difference. Uh, it's about two FBI agents, Scully and Mulder. They're assigned to what the FBI calls the X-Files, unexplainable cases. Now, I'm no expert on the show. I think I saw it once. But it fell into fairly predictable patterns. Both agents look at the same unexplainable uh, thing. And they look at the same evidence. And week after week, they respond in different ways. Scully always responds from the doubt side. She's the skeptic, constantly thinking there has to be some logical explanation. After all, if you can't explain it uh, by reason or measure it with your five senses, then it cannot be real. Mulder, on the other hand, always responds from the wonder side. He's open to unlimited possibilities, always open to the unexplainable. He understands we can't possibly explain everything with our limited experience and understanding. And it's just a way to show us that both sides, doubt and wonder, are in all of us. Everyone has both. And we choose to act either consciously or subconsciously from one or the other. If you're primarily acting out of uh, the doubt side, then you're trying to understand God through reason and senses. But if you act out of the wonder side, 
for the most part, you're always left looking for more. And at the beginning of Luke 24, we see both sides. So let's start with doubt. We'll start with doubting disciples, verses 1 through 3. Doubting disciples. Actually, we're going to start with the state of the Galilean women. You know, if you read all the resurrection stories, you discover, like, the women are the good guys in these stories. You know, it's the men that you kind of like. You know, the disciples, the one that Jesus poured his life into, they don't come off looking so great most of the time. The women are awesome. So we'll start with the women, and we can't let our knowledge of what's coming, of the discovery that still awaits them, sort of dull us um, to what they're about to experience. They still have this sort of emotional sackcloth covering their soul. They're depressed, they're exhausted, they're in mourning, they have no hope, and according to Mark uh, 16, they're actually fretting over how they're going to get into the tomb. Mark 16, 3 says, they're saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us, <coughs> excuse me, from the entrance of the tomb? They don't expect anything except more sorrow and mourning. I mean, if you take flowers to the cemetery, do you expect to see an empty grave? If you did see an empty grave, what would you think? Would your first thought be that somebody rose from the dead? Or would you think they're getting ready for the next person? If you go back 40, 50, 60 years, we all would have spent time recently at a cemetery because people went to cemeteries to pay respects to their family. And we used to do that. Spent some time in a cemetery recently. And you can't help but look at all of the headstones and see all of the fake flowers and all the little mementos that people bring. I was amazed how many beer bottles are there of people come and had a last beer with somebody. And you can always tell if it's a military person because there's usually coins on top of the headstones. The coins actually mean something that they served with that person. And everyone has a story to tell. And you can learn a lot. All of us have had loss at some time. Go back and live that loss. Go back to the cemeteries. Read the headstones. Look at family. Think about them. It's good for the soul. These women were going to the first century cemetery. They actually had a job to do. They were bringing spices that are like preservatives. And they're wondering, we, we, we can't get in. What are we going to do? The thought had never occurred to them 
that A, the stone would be rolled away and they could get in easily, and B, there wouldn't be anybody there uh, for them to minister to. It says, verses 1 through 3, on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They're confused and perplexed. John tells us that Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, who is a secret disciple of Jesus, gained permission to bury Jesus' body. And with the aid of Nicodemus, he wrapped Jesus' body in linen and about 100 pounds of spices and lays them in a new garden tomb. And the Lord Jesus lay in that tomb until the resurrection, which took place sometime before dawn on Sunday morning. And shortly after he was resurrected, these women came to the tomb to anoint his body with spices. It's mentioned in all four Gospels. There's at least four women there, probably more. Matthew mentions Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mark tells us that Salome was present. Luke includes Joanna. And these devoted women evidently reached the tomb. It says early dawn. It's daybreak, a time when it's difficult to see clearly. But what they see shakes them. The stone has been rolled away from the entrance. Someone had broken into the tomb. I'm sure they had a million questions. Did Joseph of Arimathea decide on another tomb? Did we go to the wrong tomb? Where are the soldiers? And so they sort of check it out and decide we better tell the apostles, or in this case, still the disciples. And so Mary left with the message. John picks up the thread of the narrative in John 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who'd reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Apparently, these people that are now involved with this are assuming that Jesus' body has been stolen. At least that's what Mary thought. John 20, verse 13, they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. The empty tomb now intensifies their distress. So the woman come to all the other disciples with this story of the empty tomb. And what's their response? You know, the disciples are like, This doesn't make sense. I don't understand. People don't just get up and walk out of tombs. When we use the expression, it doesn't make sense, we're saying it doesn't compute according to reason or my five senses. 
It's where the word sense comes from. If you can't smell it, see it, taste it, touch it, or hear it, it's not real. Have your children ever come to you? This is a story about things not making sense. They've come to you and asked you to help them with their homework. When my kids were growing up, uh, they did that for a while. And at some point, they figured out dad actually wasn't very much help. You need to go ask somebody else, probably older brothers and sisters, especially with math. I don't like math. And by the time they were getting into fifth and sixth grade math, I couldn't keep up. Definitely by middle school, I'm out of the picture. Now, if I can't understand middle school math, how am I going to understand God? Jesus says that we should be like little children. Well, in my family, the little children understood math. I didn't. I don't know what that says. It's not good. The children are born with wonder. And they learn at a really rapid pace, much quicker than we think. And when children are small, faith is easy. It's the easiest thing in the world. They can live out of faith in God. There's unlimited possibilities. Just ask a little kid what they want to be when they grow up. It's amazing all the different responses you get. There's no limitations. But as we get older... Our view gets more narrow and limited, and that happens to our faith, too. It tends to get more narrow and limited. And we become narrow and limited in our perspective because of what we're told. If you're told the world is flat, you start acting like the world is flat. You begin to live in this very limited and narrow world. No one ventures too far from home because mom's always saying, be careful, you could sail off the end of the planet. It affects everything until someone comes along and shatters that paradigm. We've only understood that the world is not flat for about 500 years. And obviously the world is much older than that. I mean, people said no one would ever be able to fly. Then someone invented airplanes. That paradigm was shattered. Easter is about a shattered paradigm. Peter looked at these empty uh, linen wrappings and said, if God can do that, then that changes everything. If God can do that, anything is possible. And Easter is really about the power of faith. It's not about defining God by what we can explain. It's about living from the unexplainable. And you can't explain a miracle. That's the point. I don't understand middle school math I can't explain a miracle. But if God can do what God did on Easter, then God can do anything. Nothing is impossible with God, even if you don't understand it. The disciples doubted it first. The text says now that the women get this perplexing news, starting in verse 4, perplexing news. It says, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. So these two dazzling men are angels. 
And they, they cast an entirely new light on the matter. They radiate the splendor of God. Same words are used to describe shining garments on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9. The women are overcome with fear and bow down until their faces are on the ground as a sign of respect, perhaps avoidance of the bright light. And while they're face down, one of the angels voices this immortal rebuke. Verse 5, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Not only does doubt cause us to miss opportunities, it causes us to look for the living among the dead. On that first Easter morning, the women went to the tomb and they met angels there. And the angels asked this question, why do you seek the living among the dead? There's nothing living in cemeteries. And the vast majority of them, even the flowers, are fake. Living people are not in cemeteries except for that custodian guy. You know what happens when we fail to recognize who's with us? We look for life in non-life places. Hear me out. We'll think we'll find life in achievements. Surely I can find life in this job, and so we pour ourselves into it, and here's what happens. We miss life because we live out of great ambition rather than our own small faith. We miss life because we give life to ambition rather than to God. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Or we think we can find life in relationship. Surely I can find life in this person. I've known all kinds of people who I think have their act together, they're people of integrity, and then they meet someone. You know, and they come and say, you don't understand. No one has ever made me feel this way before. And so they hook up with this person and suddenly it's, oh, you don't make me feel that way anymore. We begin to look for another relationship that can give us life. There is no other person in the world that can give you life apart from Jesus. We look to people to do for us what only God can do for us. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Or we think we can find life in things and in stuff and in purchases. How many times have you gone out and bought something just because you were depressed? It gets bad, and so we're going to find life in the next house or the next car. I mean, I do that too, and it's dumb. We don't find life there. All we do is get into debt. They call it retail therapy. Why do you seek the living among the dead. We're all desperate for life. We grasp for models of living and we turn to books or websites or whatever the latest thing is rather than connect with the source for living. The men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? The women are accused of coming to anoint a lifeless Jesus when they should have known that he would rise from the dead. It's scandalous actually to look for Jesus in a grave. I mean, if you're looking for Elvis, I can tell you where to go. The proper place is in Memphis. It's a Doric-style uh, mausoleum with ornate brass and bronze fittings on marble, and he's in his own vault in this massive, seamless copper casket among the dead. But if you're looking for Jesus, don't go there. All resurrection-denying churches look for Jesus among the dead. They love the example of the dead Jesus. They preach his courage, his conviction, even his faith. 
and sentimentality fills their sermons with language about reoccurrent spring making hope eternal, about butterflies discarding their cocoons, but the R word, resurrection, is never used except metaphorically. And the angel's rebuke sets the stage for the proclamation of the Easter message. Verse 6, he is not here, but has risen. With that astounding truth ringing in their ears, the angels tell them, he is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. The angel challenged them to remember the prophecies of his death and resurrection that he had made back in Galilee. They were pretty explicit prophecies. Right after Peter's great confession of faith in Christ, Jesus said, Luke 9, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Immediately after the transfiguration, he says, Mark 9, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Multiple times, Jesus tells them what's going to happen. And the women remembered Jesus' words. We're not told that about the men. Jesus had often spoken metaphorically, and perhaps they just sort of relegated his words to some hard-to-understand interpretation. But now the light's coming on. And they now become messengers of what they'd seen and heard. And the great truth for us here and the significance of the resurrection is that it's inseparable from Jesus' word, his previous word, about his death and resurrection. It's the word of God that makes sense of everything. They don't just explain it. They go back and say, do you remember what Jesus said? He told you what was going to happen, and now it's happened. The very structure of this last chapter of Luke makes that clear. There's three stories in Luke 24. First, we have the women's encounter with the angels at the empty tomb, and then there's the encounter on the road to Emmaus, and finally, Jesus appears to all the disciples in Jerusalem. And all three episodes are structured the same way, doubt, rebuke, instruction, and wonder. And the instructions in all three episodes consist of the same thing, the word remember. Remember what Jesus said. Remember God's word. Here we're told in the, in the first uh, part of the book, remember how he told you. And then verse 8, and they remembered his words. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus himself admonished them. Verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then finally he appears near the end of the chapter to the disciples in Jerusalem, and he instructs them. Verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you when I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. 
and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. The prophetic word from Jesus is central to the gospel. Jesus' atoning death is fully understood only in light of the whole teaching of the whole word of God. His resurrection is only understandable when joined with his word. In fact, those who had rejected his word rejected the resurrection. And Jesus predicted that too, Luke 16. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This means we're to be people of the book. We're to devour the word of God. Our hearts and minds will begin to embrace the massive dimensions of Christ only through the light of the scriptures. All of the scriptures. And then when you're able to remember how he told you, then you can't wait to go back wherever you came from, work, school, neighborhood, back home, and start sharing the wonder, verses 9 through 12, sharing the wonder. These wonderful women have been perplexed, they've been rebuked, they've been instructed, but now they're sharing what they'd seen and heard. It's impossible to know exactly how much they really understood, but they're telling everybody, this is what happened, verse 9. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. So these women, some of whom had been with Jesus a long time, they're trusted followers of Christ, they rush back from the tomb and they're telling the disciples what happened over and over again. However, the wise and lordly males were not impressed. Verse 11, these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. So they regarded the women's witness essentially as female hysteria, nonsense and babbling. And we might say, you're idiots. But actually, we probably would have done the same thing or worse, given our own sin and stupidity. But nevertheless, these are the apostles, the men whom Jesus had prayed for an entire night before calling them. Their faith would be the foundation of the church. He had directly taught them numerous times about his death and resurrection. And now the women tell him that it's happened and they're sharing about an empty tomb. And they say nonsense. They had heard and not heard God's word. It seems that they never bothered to think that Jesus meant exactly what he said. And we need to remember 98% of the Bible is intelligible to us. There is a small section that's hard to understand as uh, Peter writes about Paul. He says some of the things he writes are hard to understand. But you know, to quote the great theologian Mark Twain, he said, it's not what I don't understand about the Bible that bothers me, it's what I do understand. And the apostles failed to put into practice what they did understand. Jesus had prayed for them, John 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Our growth towards spiritual maturity begins by following the word. And so while the disciples are dismissing the ranting of Mary Magdalene as idle talk. It's very significant. In John 20, Christ first appears to this woman, Mary Magdalene. 
not to an apostle, not to the grade of society, not even to the grade of the church, but to this one particular woman. Christ appeared first to one who in the culture of that time was oppressed, a woman who had known great sin. What a great comfort it should be to us that Christ comes first to the poor in spirit. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are our poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven kingdom of heaven. That truth will never change. So how does Mary feel at that moment? She's been on an emotional roller coaster for days, and now she's at the top. And off she goes on this cross-country run to the disciples. And I can't help but think it must have been very satisfying for her to come up to them and say, Peter, John, men, I've got something to say. I've seen Jesus. What a day it would have been. There's now multiple trips to the tomb, multiple retellings, sharing the wonder of the risen Savior again and again, even when they're doubted. And to Peter's credit, despite all the doubts, he checks things out for himself. Verse 12, Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves And he went home marveling at what had happened. If God can do this, anything is possible. So what do you do? Act out of wonder. I don't know what you're living through, but don't sit in your doubts. What did Peter do? Ten disciples just sat there and thought this was nonsense. Peter probably had doubts too, but he didn't sit on his doubt. He got up and ran to the tomb. And I think that's what we should do. Run to the tomb. Act out of wonder. Act on the unexplainable and experience the miracle. God takes the impossible and makes it possible. A lot of people think, I have all this doubt. I have all these questions. I wish I could believe this, but I have way more doubts than faith. Well, first of all, faith is not the absence of doubt. I have doubts every day of my life. I got up this morning, and I had to preach for Easter. I'm thinking, I can't do this. Doubt. One of my favorite stories in all of the Bible comes in Mark 9. A man came to Jesus about his boy suffering from some kind of evil spirit, and he asked Jesus for help. And it says, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It's often cast him into fire or into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. You hear that? All things are possible for one who believes, Jesus says. Don't act out of your doubts. Act out of wonder. I love what the man says because I can relate to this guy. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Can you relate to that? Belief and unbelief are in all of us, but he chose to act on his belief. And Jesus healed his son. Peter's inspection led to wonder. It's the beginning of faith. He saw the empty tomb. He didn't entirely understand it. He started to wonder about it. It says he marveled. It would lead him to this complete Easter faith. The word was yet to fully bloom, but it had taken root. And when it does bloom in Peter's life, he becomes a powerhouse. He has an explosive sermon in Acts 2. It's not that much later. 
or a couple of months down the road. And now Peter, who is denying Christ, Peter, who is deserting Christ, now Peter, as men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and works.